Rabbi Dr. Simcha Foreman works with high-conflict couples and families. He also has a daily share on YouTube, Spotify, and authors a daily blog titled Psychology of the Daf, which discusses the daily Daf from a psychological perspective. Simcha, grace Yashkev for coming on tonight, last second. Please open it up. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, I think about people that are going through such a difficult time, whether it's divorce or the aftermath of the divorce or custody. And um, one of my uh, favorite uh, sayings from Chazal, which is really a mission and condition, is Toshavarofim Legehenim, which, uh, you know, is quite a, quite a statement. The best of the doctors are basically going to go to hell. Um, and the reason why it's one of my favorite statements is because, um, you know, what it means to me is that anytime you're involved as a professional and, and truly you mean, well, I'm not even talking about, uh, malpractice or, or, or quacks or people that don't mean well, you know, even when you mean well and, and you really do and you really want to, uh, help people, the fact of the matter is that oftentimes, um, you might miss the boat and, and cause a lot of hurt feelings. And I say this by way of introduction tonight because um, I don't know if there's a way that we can talk about this topic without somebody in some way feeling mischaracterized or hurt. And, you know, I just say that. I just say, like, Chazal didn't say don't be a doctor. They just they just warned you that that's what's in store. So um, we're going to do this because I think I think our intention is the right place. And hopefully we'll have we'll have Seattle Dishraya to, to do more harm, to do more good than harm. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying that it is an important thing to think about. So in advance, forgive me if, if in some way I mischaracterize something or don't have sufficient empathy because it is very, a very difficult topic. Um, and you know, on that topic, I, what I wanted to open up with is to conceptualize divorce as, as essentially an amputation. Um, we know that medically there are times where you have to have an amputation to save the organism. It's sometimes clear cut. Sometimes it's a judgment call, but ultimately nobody wants to cut off their limb. Um, they do it because they feel that they must and it's no picnic. And there's a lot of side effects. The fact of the matter that it was a good thing to do ultimately, and that it saved you doesn't mean that you're going to be immune from a lot of the difficulties and pains. And the metaphor really holds true. Uh, amputees have phantom pain. They actually feel pain in the limb that doesn't exist, uh, which goes to show you how far that is. And I suppose people that, that, that go through divorce, you know, they have all kinds of pains about a relationship that no longer is in existence. But then again, when you share children and you share um, assets and other aspects, the relationship necessarily is still in existence. So I did just want to open up with that that concept that we really, uh, uh, you know, divorce is a necessary thing. And, you know, Baruch Shem, we do see that, that the Torah has the ability uh, to take into account a lot of different parts of the human experience, including the need to get divorced. And it's there for a reason. So here we are talking about that and trying to do the best we can as human beings stumbling along, trying to figure it all out. Beautiful opening. And um, I'm going to turn over to Rabbi Wawai to, to give a... Rabbi Wawai, I'm not trying to cut you short, but you you know what's going on over here. It's wild. So Rabbi Wawai, it's good to have you. Yes. Thank you so, so much. Thank you to my dear friends, Rabbi Usher. Thank you, Coach Menachem. Thank you, Rabbi Simcha. Dr. Simcha, Reb Simcha for joining us. And thank you, Acher and Acher, and to the hundreds and thousands of people 
who have joined us last time. I think we had 40,000 views in last class, right? More than 40,000 views. Life After Divorce series number one, and now we are embarking on number two. So as an opening, I want to make three brief and sharp points. Number one, to pick up from Reb Simcha's words, the Gemara says in Kedushin, Toiv Shebiroifim Legehenim. The best of doctors goes to Gehenim, goes to purgatory. So Reb Simcha gave one interpretation. I want to give another interpretation, which I heard from a great doctor. And he told me, he said, Toiv Shebiroifim Legehenim, the best of doctors goes to purgatory. You know why? It's not talking about the next world. It's talking about this world. Because a, <laughs> because a real healer, a real doctor, who's there with his or her patients and empathizes, they experience Gehenim in this world. Of course, a doctor has to have a certain objectivity to be able to do his job well, but nonetheless, we are not indifferent, apathetic, unmoved. A real doctor experiences some of the plight of what his or her patients go through, and therefore they experience Gehenim in this world. And I think it's so important when we're talking about this. And I'm sharing this with not, I'm sharing this with myself and all of us and all the people who are watching this or will watch this who may not be divorced. And that is, it's so important to have empathy. You're sitting at a Shabbos table and there's a divorced man, a divorced woman. Don't stigmatize them. They're not strangers. They're not foreigners. They're not aliens. We are all people, we are all Jews, we are all brothers and sisters. Everyone has their own journeys in life. Don't stigmatize them and divert your eyes and ignore them and become uncomfortable with them. They're people who have gone through their journey just like you and I have our journey. And each of us has our baggage and our struggles and our challenges. It's so important to be able to relate to them. There's an expression in Hebrew, means heart to heart face-to-face. You don't have to start feeling awkward and uncomfortable and not knowing what to say. Just be real, be authentic, be empathetic. We have so many organizations and Moizdas to help people who are sick and poor, which is incredible and amazing. But show empathy and show compassion to somebody whose marriage has been terminated for whatever reason. And just be there for them. Communicate with them with your heart, with your soul in a straightforward way. If you're not sure what to say and how to say and how to be helpful. Don't ignore and don't become awkward. If you're close, you can have an open conversation about it. And I say also to those people who have been divorced or are in the process of divorce, don't uh, accuse your brothers or sisters or cousins or friends or neighbors of not knowing what to do. They may be confused. And if you're friendly with them, share with them how they might help you. But it's also a responsibility on all of us to be able to reach out. You know, how can I be here for you? How can I be here for your children? You're in shul. There's a child from a divorced family. His father is not there. He's there with his mother. You know, be a makarev. Be, 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 be specially kind and sensitive and empathetic to, 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 this, to, 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 to these individuals. It's, it's so important. It's important with every single person, especially important with people who are going through the challenge of Divorce, even again, if it's a lifesaver and important. So that's number one. Number two is another message I think is extremely important. Some people, you know, you build families, and in our communities, and in Judaism, marriage and family is so important. It's like the foundation of Klal Yisrael, education and children and marriage and, and a bias Yisrael. 
And then suddenly, you know, all your dreams have been shattered. And we spoke about that in, in, in the previous session with the marshal, the breaking of the luchas. And I think it's so important to remember something. You know, in this week's parasha in Shlach, the dream of the promised land is shattered. It's shattered. The Jews were supposed to go into the promised land. They never make it in there. And Moshe Rabbeinu himself never makes it into the land flowing with milk and honey. But they're 40 years in the wilderness. But those 40 years are not wasted. Those 40 years are the foundation of all of civilization, the foundation of all of the Jewish people and all of Judaism, because it's Alpi Hashem Yisu and Alpi Hashem Yachanu, because God guided them. Even after the dream of the promised land was shattered, they were on a journey 40 years, and nobody's going to say that Moshe Rabbeinu's 40 years were wasted. Those 40 years with Moshe Rabbeinu are the foundation of all of history and of all of morality and of all of Torah and of all of Yiddishkeit, including of Yemais HaMashiach. It all goes back to those 40 years in the desert. And what I say to you is, we all have our promised land that we hope to go into, and everybody should go into the promised land, our promised land collectively, Bekarev, and individually. But, Alpi Hashem Yisu, Alpi Hashem Yachanu, every one of us has journeys that are unexpected. Don't think that your future is bleak. Embrace your future with an open heart, with a positive attitude, and with good spirit, because God is holding you throughout this journey. Don't despair because your promised land dream has been terminated because every one of us has a journey and we never know what exactly our promised land is. The third thing I want to say is a letter I received from somebody yesterday. He listened to the first session and he just shared with me a letter and I got a similar letter from somebody else I want to combine. And I'm just going to read it almost verbatim. I just thought it was very meaningful. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was married for 14 years, painful and difficult years. My former wife suggested that it's time to split. We both agreed. Our marriage was just miserable. Therapy was not helping. It was not working. 14 years of pain. A few hours later, we called a reputable Besden with good and empathetic judges. They gave us an appointment a few days later. We met with the rabbis a few times, once, twice, three times, and then they realized indeed a divorce was inevitable. I divorced her. I gave her a get. On Friday night after the meal, we asked the children, this is the week before I divorced, we asked the children to sit down comfortably on the couch. And then we shared with our children our plans that we're going to be living in different homes. It's sad, I can almost cry, but it's very moving. And we told them that mommy will remain your mommy forever and ever. Tati will remain your Tati forever and ever. Tati and Mommy love you all forever and ever. We will always be here for you. But we came to a decision that it's better for us and for all of you that we're not together in the same home. And then we let them ask all kinds of questions. For hours, they were just asking questions. And we answered and we reassured them. And we were friendly and civil to each other. And I want you to know, it was so difficult at the moment. Years later... My daughter once called, once came in to me and she told me she so admires how me and my ex-wife handled the divorce. And then when she realized other kids from divorced parents and what they go through, one of her friends, she told us, expressed to her that she never knew that a divorce could be peaceful and that people could be so menschlich to each other until she saw how my daughter's parents who were divorced related to each other. And until today... Whenever one of our children needs a doctor's appointment or needs a therapy appointment or needs clothes or needs help, 
act educationally or socially, psychologically or spiritually. We just make sure to know that even though we are, we cannot get along with each other, but we communicate with respect and civility. For our children, it made a world of difference. And I beg and plead all my colleagues, despite the hate and despite the vengeance and despite everything, this type of arrangement is possible. It's what we owe ourselves, our souls, and our children. Thank you very much. And I look forward to a very meaningful, meaningful evening with all of you. Beautiful, beautiful opening. Um, we're going to go straight into questions. Um, we have a lot of questions here. And again, everybody who's here tonight, the point of this year is to really ask your questions. You can be vulnerable here. We have Reverend Waiwai, we have Simcha Foreman, and we're here to just have a very open conversation. We discussed already. I'm going to read the, you know, some of the stuff we did. We know what we're, what we're going for. We, we spoke about some of the initial hurt, the fighting in Bezden. We want to cover a lot of topics like feeling abandoned by former family and friends, feeling estranged from communities, navigating the children's journey through the whole of divorce. We're going to deal with parental alienation. We'll touch on the topic of withholding a get, the proper time to explore dating, remarriage, and navigating second marriages. Whatever we can cover of that tonight, let's try to cover. I'll start off with the first question. We'll start with that. And then hopefully um, people are want to ask, please text me right over here, Ashur Parnas, and we'll try to get your question on. Again, live questions go first. I know I'm getting tons of questions, but whoever could ask live first, whoever could ask live will go first. And let's do that, okay? Let's start and with the first that- you yes, can go it. live without showing your face. They can go right. live without showing their face. Right. Change your name to my ex. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you could say you're asking for your friend. <laughs> that's right. Okay, let's start with the first question. <clears throat> when I was married, I was very close to... Okay, so we're, we're starting... We're holding my family and friends. Turning us, but let's, we're going to open it up to everything, but let's, let's start with that. When I was married, I was very close to my husband's family. And even when we were there, we were separated... Throughout the whole thing, they were super supportive to me and being with me. As the years went on, they turned their backs to me, and it hurts. And they actually hurt me and my kids and bad mouth me. Where can I put this pain in my head? Ooh. Well, uh, you know, I, 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 it's hard to understand what all the circumstances are. Uh, but I would, I, would, I would wonder if there was a change, you know, and it really means something still, you know, there's always the idea you could just walk away. But if, if somebody seems to have some kind of time on you, if the narrative changed, it might be worth asking. Uh, perhaps it's, it's, it's very contentious. I, I, I don't know, but the, you know, there's no way to get to the bottom of something without asking. Maybe, you know, oftentimes in families, there's sort of one person that sort of is the go between somehow able to stay connected to both sides. It you know, might be worth asking. It seems as if there's been a change. There's been a change in the air. Have I have I done something? Have I hurt anybody? Is there something I need to know? Which I don't think is the same as admitting, you know, weakness or or admitting that you're wrong. I mean, obviously, if you're wrong, you you could admit it. But inquiring what people are upset about is, to me, you know, a sign of strength and 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 decency. Um, I I don't want to presume. There's so many factors, but. When someone's out to get you, if they can be civil enough that you could ask them what's going on, it, it can be helpful. All right, you want to try one on that one? Yeah, no, I completely agree with Hipsimcha. I would only add that, you know, it's important to reach out to the right person, you know, who is more mature, who may have not been poisoned. There may have been poison. 
You know, somebody may have fed some information, right information or, or wrong information, and they have poisoned the family against you. And it's very, very sad, but it's important to reach, if it's possible, if it's possible, to reach out to somebody, you know, who's more, who's, who's mature, who's intelligent, who's, who's empathetic and, and, and say, you know, what, you know, did I do something wrong? Uh, what, what happened? What changed? I agree. And I, I would just add one thing, and that is you may painfully find out that at the moment there may be nobody to talk to. They may have been poisoned very badly. There may have been some terrible, terrible misunderstandings. There may be contention beyond your imagination. You may not immediately be able to find an easy solution and just go back to square one. And that may require a certain form of grieving for precious relationships that were lost. But remember, whatever the response is, you'll be doing the right thing by reaching out and trying to create peace, trying to create at least some understanding. And that you should be confident about and feel good about doing that. What the result and how their response will be, that we have to see. If they don't, if they don't answer anything, if they were poisoned, what would you tell this uh, person to tell himself when he gets home? <laughs> well, you know, when bad things happen um, in any type of relationship, the best you could do is is uh, ask yourself, is there something you should have done and there's something you still could do? And if there isn't, then accept. And it's, you know, the famous, uh, uh, you know, serenity prayer. <laughs> you know, you, you, you try to change the things that you can and accept the things that you can't. And that it's important to understand that family dynamics, there's no such thing as non-communication. Non-communication is communication. It's, it's a very unfortunate form uh, and highly problematic. But if people are refusing to talk to you, the sad truth is that somebody feels that the problem is so bad or you are so bad that you can't be spoken to. And I'm not trying to suggest in any way that those are the facts. I'm saying those are the facts of how people feel. and when that happens, the best way to respond to communication is to hear it. So if somebody's saying that, they, that, that you are so bad that they can't even talk to you, um, you might try one last effort, I think after a while, not right away, and say, I get the sense that you feel that I'm not somebody who you could talk to or solve any problems with. Because the closer you come to where the other person's at and what they're thinking and saying, the more likely you can have a civil conversation. You know, there's no guarantees. We don't know what's going on on the other side. You can't account for another person's behavior. But it is communication to not communicate. Right, that's what we're going to be talking about Sunday. Communication is exactly the share. <laughs> Learn communication. There's one other thing I want to mention. I have a live question on, but there's also that concept of family, blood is thicker than water. At the end of the day, sometimes even if the person might know that you're not so bad or this and that, but there's, you know, they're, 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 they're your ex-mother-in-law. What, 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 what do you want them to do? You know, does that like I have to be with that? Is that that concept? But they don't have to stonewall you. They don't have to stonewall you. I mean, there's something called civil relationships. I may not be. We may not go out for coffee every Wednesday afternoon. Well, but you're raising an interesting question, um, Asher. I'm, I'm wondering if, if you know, it's really hard just from a, a small sentence to to construct the whole case history. But since there was originally some closeness and then it fell off. It is a bit of a clue. It could be that some other, let's say, the other child, and you know, instead of the child-in-law, the child somehow felt like they weren't being 
given enough love and respect and there was some kind of like jealous like you either choose me or the other person and you know that's possible it might not be fixable at this point but it is an interesting thing that originally everything was smooth and then it went off it's definitely data something happened here okay let's go to some live questions a lot of people are interested. please let's make it interactive you're on hi hi um okay um this is my question um um thank you everybody um when i was when i grew up my parents got divorced when i was much younger um and i have a lot of history in my family with that kind of stuff and my whole life i was very aware of that and i always you know like was like i don't want that to happen and then you know i got married and got divorced a few months later and i just wanted to know like uh, three things first of all how do you live with yourself when you know you look back and it was like your your fault um that's my first question. My second question is how how do you not be like angry at God? <laughs> you know, just yeah, why couldn't make you in a different situation? And my third question is how do you not feel cursed? You know, if, like because these things tend to in certain families they just tend to keep happening over and over, and no matter how hard you stop, you know, they can be continued. Thank you very much, Rami Wyway. I love your shiurim. Thank you. Wow. Rabbi, maybe take it. I mean, it's good I have both of you because questions for both of you. Rabbi, can you go first, please? Yeah, at least one response to this. First of all, I'm sorry for all the pain. It's very difficult. But let me just, you know, put it very bluntly and succinctly. Precisely because you feel that your family was, and I'm saying this quote-unquote, cursed, with this trauma and toxicity that's playing itself out generationally, this means that this exactly is your mission. It says in Svarim, this is a very big topic in Kabbalah and in Hasidus and in Musr, that our souls have been here before, many of our souls. My soul comes down again. How do I know for what? And I have to see that which is the most challenging. When I know that something is important for me and it's so difficult for me, this means that this is part of the reason my soul came down to this world. So I say to you, my dear friend, I know it's difficult, but this is your chance. You have an opportunity to confront all this pain, all this trauma, all this dysfunctionality, and ask yourself powerful questions with compassion. And that is, what can I learn from what happened in my childhood? What can I learn from my own marriage and my own divorce? What issues within myself do I have to confront and have the courage and the resolve to not surrender to any fear or shame? And instead of using the tragedy to keep you down and to paralyze you and to make you feel guilty and hate yourself, don't become a victim to that. See it as an opportunity for unprecedented growth and renewal and rejuvenation. Ask yourself these questions. Okay, let's say it was my fault. I simply did not know how to be a husband. And therefore, it's my fault. What am I going to learn from this? What lessons can I glean from this? And you have to be able to forgive yourself. You have to be able to treat yourself with compassion. Walk away from this. A new person with a deeper lesson. You did your best. You were given certain tools. Your tools were limited. It's not all your fault. You were given very, very limited tools. You came... There's a difficult package here. It's part of, part of it is, is, is the divine plan. And therefore, the most important thing is to take ownership 
of your past and your future. You can't be perfect, but you can be accountable and create a future with resolve and with courage. In terms of anger at God, what I would say very briefly is, this is a big question, a difficult question, and we all deal with it. And I say two things. Number one, be honest with God. Like you're honest with your best friend, with your closest therapist, with your closest mentor. Talk to Hashem like you talk to a friend. Share everything. Whatever you're feeling, you put on the table. You don't have to suppress or repress any emotion in the presence of Hashem. You'll have a much healthier relationship with Hashem. And number two, you have to understand with Hashem, as he told Moshe, you'll never see my face. You'll see my back. The Chsam Seifer says, it's very, very hard to understand life as it's happening. Sometimes we can understand life, you know, 2020 hindsight is 2020. Sometimes we can understand life from hindsight. And the point is, it's very difficult to try to make peace at the moment with your journey when the journey is so painful. What I would say to you is the anger is part of the normal human emotions. But also remember that God is infinity. And infinity, by definition, is not something I can wrap my brain around. It doesn't have to make sense in my brain. Our journeys are so mysterious and our missions are so mysterious. But can you trust, can you just trust that somehow in all of this pain, there is some meaning, there is some purpose, which you may not understand now, and that's fine. But you can just trust it and therefore tell God, listen, I really don't know what you're doing and why you're doing, but I am trusting. And help me just move forward and use my crisis as an opportunity. Well, it's, uh, there are a couple of things I, I was just listening to what Rabbi uh, Jacobson was saying, and the you know it's fascinating how a lot of times like there's concepts in in, in in mysticism that are reflected just slightly differently in psychology, but essentially the same. It's like you know a base two numbering system or a base ten numbering system. Like you're using different symbols to express a truth. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, what you talked about, like, whether it's, you know, on the, on the level of Gilgulim or it's just on the level of like, this is your Nisayan. Um, psychologically speaking, there's something called the repetition compulsion, which is that people unconsciously, not because they want to fail. See, this is where it needs to be understood carefully. They seek to recreate many of their past relationships because they want to do it again and do it right. There's a very strong urge. Uh, it's just a part, just like people need to sleep, people need to eat, uh, people need hugs. There's a very strong drive deep within the human psyche to want to master, to want to succeed. And so that people oftentimes do unwittingly walk into situations that are very similar to past relationships. But here's the but. There is a a possibility to do it differently. And oftentimes um, it works and sometimes it doesn't because human beings don't always succeed the first time what they want to do, you know, Sheva Yipotzadik become. But the point is that you may very well have sought out, um, at least in your first choice, uh, consciously or unconsciously, somebody or some situation that has similarities to your family of origin. And it is the tikkun, you know, to go through it. Um, of course, it'd be ideal to to go through it and, and not end up divorced, but, you know, no one really knows. No one knows what happened. No one knows all the circumstances. The point is that there is some truth to that. The other thing I would say, which is also an interesting combination of the, you know, the psychological and the spiritual, we have this idea 
um, you know, there's somebody does tshuva, me'ava, that if they do tshuva, you know, completely sincerely, uh, then not only are the averis forgiven, but there's the averis and also The averis are made into mitzvahs. And the truth is, it makes no sense at first glance. But psychologically, it makes a lot of sense. If, if I could take a minute to explain why. The, we are nothing uh, right now based on our past. We, we are simply what we are right now. Whatever we are right now is what we are. We're not what the future is and we're not what the past is. Our consciousness and our sense of self is, is something that's happening immediately. And in, in many ways, we're constantly recreating ourselves. Granted, we're using certain anchors from our past experience to tell us how we should interpret what's going on in the present. But in reality, the past simply doesn't exist. And that the, the issue about feeling guilty, you know, the quote, uh, we messed up, I messed up with this, I messed up with that, I regret for this. It's, it's ridiculous because we simply are not what we were. We're just not. We are what we are right now. And that this is, um, there's Rav Tzadika Cohen, which says something similar, except again, he's not using a psychological sprach. But he says, he says that basically when the reason why uh, an Avera turns into mitzvah, when you do, when you do tshuva uh, me'ava is because if everything happens as God's will anyway. So ultimately, even though you're supposed to try as hard as you can to do the right thing, if something in the end happens wrong, it was God's will. So the only thing that's missing is you didn't have the best of intentions. So he says, once you, you know, reach a certain level of dveikos and avas Hashem, then you had the right intentions, so it turns into a mitzvah. But listen, that's a very complicated theological point. But what I'm trying to say is, psychologically speaking, it we 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 define ourselves a great deal based on our past, but it really means nothing. It it really doesn't. You are exactly what you are right now, for better or for worse. I already quoted Mishnah Kedushin earlier. There's another famous Mishnah, all the you know famous uh, Bali Musar, you know quote where it's uh, a person says, "Harei Megadeshus Li Amanas." You know, and the, right, the Mishnah says, even if he's a Russia, we believe maybe he did tshuva, shemahira so it counts. Technically, it's a marriage because he, at that moment, we don't know, even though we see him eating a cheeseburger afterwards, he was, you know, he really was a tzaddik. And all the, you know, the lum mask, what do you mean? And what about the three steps of tshuva? You know, you know, how did he do that in one second? So the answer is it wasn't, he wasn't forgiven. He just was a simply a different person at that moment. At that moment, he was a tzaddik. And if you can understand what I'm saying, regretting the past is only useful. It's, it's, it's an instinct, like any other instinct, like when you come near the stove and, and it's hot and your hand pulls away, or, or, or like when your nose is tickled and you sneeze, but it also, you know, you can have terrible allergies. Instincts can go awry and get overly triggered. Regret is a very important instinct because it gives us the ability to look back on our decisions and try in some way to throw it into the into that big black box up here that we have really no idea what's going on. Trust me, we have no idea what's going on. We throw more information in there and hopefully the next time when, when we ask for input, a wiser answer comes out, hopefully. And that's all you got. That's all you have. So you, you might have done mistakes um, and you can feel bad about that if you'd like to for a bit. But the most important thing is what you are right now. And life is truly dynamic. Um, Whatever is going to happen based on the decisions you make now is far more important than anything that, that happened in the past. Far more important. Regrettable, possibly, but not really important. Wow, beautiful. Okay, we have so many questions here. Let's go. You're on live. 
Hi. Okay. I just wanted to, first of all, thank you. It sounds like an amazing uh, prep for what I'm going through. Uh, my question is, in my in my case, I have children that are um, they're 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 going through a really really difficult time during my divorce. Um, I would say that my ex and I are not on the same page. He did not want the divorce. I had to get out because I was getting very sick in the divorce uh, in the marriage. And now he's you know he's he's sharing to our friends all kind of stories about. Um, why we got divorced and people come back and tell me this is what he's saying about you. And, you know, it kind of pinches, but it's okay. I'll, I'll be okay. But the things that he's telling my children really hurts me. And I find that it's kind of breaking them. So me as the parent chooses not to talk about him and why I got divorced. How do I, how do I give them strength? How do I get them through this time so that they're not breaking and they can get by this difficult time? I don't mean to presume to speak before you, Rabbi Jacobson. You, you want to comment on that? You're okay. Oh, All right. So, you, you know, I think that some situations are just regrettable and unfortunate, and you can't control um, what your spouse is going to do. But I, I, I will say that in the long run, a lot of these things are about the, the long game versus the short game. And maybe later tonight, depending on other questions, there'll be more to talk about that whole long game, short game mentality. But the bottom line is, that you want to communicate to your children, um, you know, that that you have a relationship with them and that what goes on in your relationship with them is, is sacred, each one. And nobody else has any say in that, for good or for bad. Just nobody else defines that relationship. Oftentimes, um, differentiation, which is a psychological term, but, you know, a very quick uh, Cliff Notes version of it is, you know, the ability to see each person distinctly and not to get overly anxious in the presence of somebody else or needing to make somebody else into something that they're not because it makes you uncomfortable. And, and differentiation is a very key psychological skill. And it would be no surprise that people that go, go through divorces, if their relationship wasn't all that hot to begin with, even if they were the picture of mental health, if their spouse wasn't, many, many years of emotional development were lost during that time. So it's a really tough thing to be able to differentiate. But you can communicate that to your children and say, listen, what we have is between us. And nobody gets to define that except ex- except for us. And that I'm not comfortable uh, defending myself. I'm not comfortable putting anything anybody down. I just want to have the best relationship with you. I want to have the best family with you. I want when you're here in my house for you to feel the safest. I want when you go out into the world that you feel my love with you. Things that I can't control, I can't control. And I would just thank you, the Psimcha. Of course, I second that. I would just add uh, probably the obvious and that is, it's so important, two things. Number one, you have to take care of yourself. It's very important. You need all the stamina and the vigor and the well-being, physically, emotionally, psychologically. You know, don't see it as selfish and narcissistic. You know, give, give your children a strong mother and, and, and a strong person, whether this includes, you know, your, your, your habits, your exercise, your, your schedules, when you wake up, your hobbies, but just, Pursue a lifestyle that that nurtures your neshama and your body and your mind so you could really be emotionally present for yourself and for your child because and your children because there is a challenge here. And I think it's also so important to be able to give your children the confidence and the space to be able to know that in your presence they can just share everything. And 
and you could be there for them, to listen to them, to validate them, uh, not to judge them, to be able to create a safe space where they can really manifest and express all their emotions, all their feelings. And you'll tell them, I can't fix every, you can't fix every situation. You can't change your ex. You can't change their father. But what you could do is you can create a, a, a womb that contains them and contains their emotions and contains their feelings. And, and remember, they're going to get older and, and that relationship and that powerful connection, um, will, will not be forgotten. Wow. Okay. There's a question that came in. This, we have neighbors going through a terrible divorce. Courts, fighting, police. We really like both of them. The issue is I'm having is that when my wife reaches out to help her, she talks about all the horrible things about her husband. And when I reach out to the husband, he tells me everything about her. How can my wife and I continue to help them without getting pulled into this whole fight? Yeah, and I would say this is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity in a way, and I know that's not your objective, but to mentor them. Explain this to them. You know, you could maybe both sit down with her, with him, both of them perhaps separately or together. That I don't know. That depends on the relationship. And really say, listen, we love you both. You're both good people. Like all of us, nobody's perfect. This marriage is not getting along, but we really don't want to take sides. For us, this is not about a fight and a contention. We want to be here for you. We want to be here for you. And especially if these children, it is so vital, it's so important. So make sure that you create the proper boundaries that they should understand that it's inappropriate to pull you into a fight that is really negative and undesirable and toxic. And and I think by by being firm, kind, but firm, you'll be able to help them step away from the mindset of of vengeance and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get justice. You know, one of our, our great mistakes, it's a normal mistake, our great mistakes is that we fear that in the divorce I want to get justice. I want justice to be met. I want fearness to be experienced. And really we can't always get justice. What's more important is I want to create a bright future for me and my children. I want to create a bright and the best possible future. That is the key. Creating the best possible future, Be'ezer Hashem, for me and my children. And by the way, that means also for their other parents, because children love both of their parents. And if we could help them get into that mindset, have good boundaries, and remember, don't get schlepped in. Let's not become the people who take sides and get enmeshed and entangled in a fight where both people are right and both people are wrong. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. I'm going to jump to the next question because I have another question also. Okay, you're on live. Hi. Um, I have to preface this by saying that I'm single. I've never been married. I don't have children. My question is, um, I'm an older single too. So in my age cohort, um, many of the men are divorced and I'm wondering you know like the Bashir, the first Bashir, like the second soulmate by marrying a divorced man would I be missing out on my first soulmate would I be his second soulmate um, how does that work thank you Rabbi Wai Wai this is for you <laughs> oh <laughs> lucky me 
Uh, listen, you know, there's a beautiful expression in Chumash. Hanistoros l'ashem elokeinu v'aniglos lanu elovaneinu ad olam l'asas which means there are elements in life that are really true, but they're infinitely mysterious. And you're touching upon one of them. I, I don't know that most of us, certainly I, can't make these calculations. You know, are you missing out on your real soulmate? Is this not your real soulmate? Did you have another soulmate? And what happened with that soulmate? These things are so mysterious, exactly to know how God's plans with Shaduchim and life. It, it, this, this is a very, very, you know, challenging question, but I think it's beyond certainly most of us. And as the famous expression that one of the great mystics said, those who know, don't say, and those who say usually don't know. Well, so, so I don't know, and I'm not going to say because I don't know. But I think the most important thing is, you know, you have to ask yourself the real questions and relevant questions. And that is, is this a person with whom you feel you can hold hands for the rest of your life and build a beautiful home together? Is this a person who has good midas? Is this a person who shares your values? Is this a person who can compromise? Is this a person who's accountable, who's real, who's honest? Is this a person who will, who you want to go on the journey of life together? The fact that he was married before and he went through a divorce, that could mean a hundred thousand different things. You know, maybe he became a better person as a result of that. Uh, maybe he became much more self-aware. Maybe he's going to be much more vulnerable and honest. Maybe not. So I think you should really, you know, take it, for some situations, people marry divorced people and they have incredible relationships. Incredible. I know them. Sometimes it's the other way around. There's no one way to judge this and to define this. So really, you know, examine the relationship and the person in, in a thorough, take it easy, take it slowly, and, and it may be a wonderful, wonderful soulmate for you. I would not just rule it out. I just want to say one email I got this week. I think it's relevant to this question and then we'll move on. But it's, it was very funny. Somebody sent an email and they said they read someplace that the Neshama, and it goes up to Elam Haba, when she comes, will be back with the original first person they married. She writes, Rabbi Waiwai, how am I supposed to? I couldn't live with him down here. How can I live with him up, here, up there? So I want to, it's a great question. I want to make everybody aware that part of Mashiach's coming is that everybody is going to be truly blissful and happy. So don't worry. God is going to make sure that any soulmate that you have, you are going to be blissful and overjoyed. Don't worry about it. Mashiach is going to have big, bigger problems to solve and he'll certainly be able to solve this. Really, don't don't be anxious about this. <laughs> okay, the next live question, you're on. Okay, first, thank you so much for this much-needed discussion. Now, Rabbi Jacobson spoke about being nice and not stigmatizing um, divorced people. What about helping someone who is not doing the right thing, like he got a sack that he needs to give a get and he's withholding it for no reason, just for being mean. How about people supporting such a type of person and being nice to him? Are you allowed to enable him, to support him? I'm sure you're waiting for me to answer the question, right? For all of you. <laughs> Do you want to speak first? I mean, I have what to say. Well, I, I, I would just say, you know, when if somebody's doing something they're obviously doing it for a reason. That doesn't make it right, but it means this person's involved in some kind of state of war. They're holding on to something that they think is vital. Um, unfortunately, war is a, is, is a very common human experience, both on the micro level and on the macro level. 
and people claim to never want it, but for something that we never want, we sure do a whole lot of it. Um, so I'm not trying to tell you that this person's um, innocent, but it might be worth saying to the person, listen, you know, your behavior on the outside seems quite inexplicable. You know, there's a, there's a seer of the Rabbanu are telling you, et cetera, et cetera. I know you, you know, I'd like to think the best of you. Um, you're violating the halacha, so I can't really think the best of you, but I'd like to understand you at least. Um, and, you know, that might be a helpful conversation to have with the person because it, it might help them discharge some of their, their their frustration, perhaps in having them talk out their position. They might reconsider or realize that, that they're being a bit ridiculous. Whatever the case may be, it's certainly worth doing. Um, giving tochacha is an art. Uh, the the there's a, there was a Talmud of Rechaim Velazhin who wrote a sefer, Kesar Rosh, about all the Hanhagas of, of, uh, of Rechaim Velazhin. And one fascinating thing is Rechaim Velazhin says, you, says that, that if you can't give Tochacha nicely, your potter, your onus, and it's onus Rechona Patre, your potter from giving Tochacha if you don't know how to do it nicely. The point is Tochacha is a complex arrangement. Asking the person why he's doing what he's doing, telling them you'd like to understand because you'd like to judge them favorably, is a very fine tochacha, you know, without telling them that they're that they're doing something that's really morally reprehensible. Anyway, those are my thoughts. And I would just add, yes, I agree with Reb Simcha, as the Mishnah tells us, have done as kola adam lekafschos. It's always important to be able to give people the benefit of the doubt and have a conversation with them, and maybe listen to their frustrations, their grievances. Um, help them release, as he said, some of their anxiety and so forth. And maybe that can bring things to a peaceful closure. However, sadly, and I say this very, very sadly, sometimes there are good people, therapists, rabbis, friends, neighbors, confidants, who have tried this. I'm one of them who have tried this with certain individuals for months and months and months. Listen, 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 validate but somehow certain individuals will stubbornly, stubbornly cling to their position and will refuse to give a get to their wife. Sometimes it's the other way around. I think most times it's one way around, but sometimes it's also the other way around. I don't want to you know, stigmatize one gender or the other gender. And this is a very tragic situation. Why is it? Maybe it's mental illness. Maybe it's some crazy deep trauma that is unresolved. Maybe there's just so much pain, so much pain the person can let go of it. You know, sometimes narcissistic person, I'm not here to, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not going to diagnose, but sometimes could be really, you know, real narcissist, narcissistic personality disorder, or a combination of many, many different things. But sometimes literally there's nothing, nothing doing. And it's important to be able to acknowledge that. And then I think it's critical. It's critical to follow through with the community joining forces according to the guidance of halacha and not becoming an accomplice to this type of abuse. I have in my shul somebody who has not given his wife a get for more than five years. And I'll tell you, by nature, whoever knows me knows I I don't like... I've tried to avoid conflict like the plague, worse than the corona, <laughs> like a pandemic. I try to avoid it in my personal and communal life. And this guy came to every class. He walked six miles on Shabbos to come to my class 
Usher. That's good for the ego. Right? Feels good. Somebody walks six miles Shabbos morning to hear to hear my class. And a great student, he would ask questions. It also tells you he's one stubborn guy. And if he puts his mind to something, he'll do it. So it tells you the need that goes both ways. Exactly. And a very wise student. And I knew he was separated. And then I started to hear the story. And I listened for months and months and months. And I validated and I was Malamit's Chus. And I thought, Rabbi Waiwai, with his, you know, with my skills, I'll be able to peacefully get it done and everything, you know, I'll, I'll get it done. And then I realized I'm also being sold the Brooklyn Bridge. And I had to make a very difficult decision. And I phoned him one day and I said, listen, I'll be the first one to give you a hug and extol your virtues from the pulpit after you give a get. But till you give a get, do not step foot into this shul and do not step foot into my classes because I will become an accomplice of tormenting your spouse and tormenting your eight children who all stopped speaking to you because none of them have closure. And between between us, I feel that it's often a shanda and a disgrace of many of us, rabbis, teachers, pedagogues, community leaders, activists, laymen and laywomen, who don't want to take sides and want to be nice with everybody. And we often stand idle as we watch the blood of innocent women and sometimes innocent men being spilled. And that is unforgivable. Okay. Wait, before, before you continue, so where do they go now? When they are dealing with this mental illness and this heavy, heavy situation? What I, would, what I would suggest is, first of all, I just want to say one thing. Since I started to talk about it, a bunch of people, they don't stop bullying me. Rabbis, I say this to all my colleagues, rabbis, teachers, community leaders, activists, regular lay, lay, lay men and lay, women, lay leaders, and all of us, kol am don't be afraid of bullies. There are people who will bully you and threaten you. I have been threatened and threatened and threatened. I don't even mention names, but I've been threatened with every conceivable threat in the world. Remember the Baal Shem Tev's words that he heard from his father on his deathbed when he was five years old. Yisraelik, don't be afraid of anybody or anything in the world but Hashem. And love every Jew with all your heart. Those were the pillars that allowed the Baal Shem Tev to change the Jewish world for eternity. Two teachings he heard from his father moments before he died. Don't be afraid of bullies. The community must join forces. All of us become accomplices to evil when we are passive and silent. Yes, you have to make sure the right investigation was done. Don't dismiss people just because you're in a bad mood. Always be done lekafschos. Make sure what's being done is according to halacha with a real reputable bezdin or dayan. We follow Torah. We follow Hashem's will. It's not about personal vengeance. But once the truth has been established, the person walks into a bagel shop, they should know they're not going to be given a bagel. They're not going to get an aliyah in shul. They're not welcome to the dinner or to the bar mitzvah or to the shavrach or the bis, even if they give the shul and the yeshiva a big check. We, all of us together, can do this. And just on a very practical level, I would suggest... To every woman and man who is dealing with such an impossible situation, which I'm telling you, it is so painful. I I hear sometimes stories and I speak to the men. They speak to me. And I just, I finish the conversation and I could literally start crying for half an hour feeling 
what this person has gone through in their marriage and now when they're trying to move on after their marriage. It is so, it is so, it is so disturbing. It is so tormenting. And I would suggest on a practical level, every woman deserves this. She should have, and we have to volunteer for this. Every woman who's struggling with this should have a committee. It's not fear that she has to carry the burden. After 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 6 years of marriage, now, 24 hours a day, she's being tormented by a, by either a psychopath or a choyle nefesh or a rosha merusha whose cruelty, or blame it on trauma, whatever, it's not here about judgmentalism, but the cruelty is unbearable. Don't put it all on the woman. She suffered already for 20 years. She didn't have a normal night with this guy. We all have to be there for I think every woman deserves a committee. On that committee, there should be a rabbi, a therapist, a lawyer, an activist, a community leader, and anybody else. And they should put their heads together and they'll get it done. Every woman deserves such a committee that focuses. You can meet once a week, once a month, put their heads together. You have different types of heads, different types of expertise. You have a businessman, you have a lawyer, you have a therapist, you have a rough. You make sure everything follows halacha. And together, every woman deserves such a committee. We should all volunteer, volunteer for this. To every such type of woman, we put our heads together and be'ezer Hashem, they can be emancipated and released from the chains of oppression that I've been holding them down for so long. Yeah, I just want to mention two things that somebody, uh, somebody who deals with this a lot mentioned to me this week. said also a lot of times withholding the get sometimes is used out of context. They said there's a process in Besden that once the woman does her part and let's say lets them see the kids, does her thing, and the Besden possibly the time to give a get, it doesn't mean because the woman asks for a get that they get to get. There's a process. And we've got many questions here, but why I'm sure you're familiar with this, that uh, people have wrote in, you know, the, my wife hasn't let me see the kids in a year, That's true. We have to mention that. We have to mention that. Sometimes there are women who sadly are manipulating the situation. They will not have the, allow the husbands to see the child in years. In years. And his only leverage is the get. So he has to really discuss this with a real competent Bezdin and Dayan to make sure he's following halacha. It's very, very important. So yes, let's not just put the blame on one side. Sometimes there are women who their behavior could be very, very, very inappropriate in this sense. And the husbands are desperate. I have a man who came here, sat here for three hours on my porch, weeping. He hasn't seen his child in years. In years. He gave a get, actually. He gave a get. So I I understand. And I'm really not being judgmental of any individual and not being naive to different cases and different situations. But we have to remember as rabbis, as Jews, all of us, the main function of Yiddishkeit, the essence of Torah is, as Hillel said, to be empathetic to those who are oppressed, not to do to somebody else what we would like to be, what we would not like to be done to us and our children. This is kol ha So the essence of Torah is to be able to be there for the vulnerable, to be there for those who are being abused, for those who are being tortured, for those who are being chained, for those who are being tormented, women or men. And the moment we start ignoring this and we talk about everything else in the world, we are forfeiting our main role as Jews, which is to stand up for justice, to stand up for compassion, and to stand up for love and affection, and to put a stop to all forms of abuse and torture. I'm sorry to mention one more thing, and then I want to move on to the next question. 
But the, the lawyer we had last week actually had a talk with her afterwards. She mentioned that she felt that a lot of women sometimes are so desperate for the get, they give a lot of concessions in the divorce itself just to get that get. She said, like, she just, you know, yeah, realize you're going to get a get at the end of the day. Most people give gets, you know, you can't really do anything without a get unless you're not from. But to give up concessions of money or whatever you want, whatever you need, just for the get. She just, I just want to put it out there. That's a rabbi if you want to whatever. And I think it's, I think, I think it's also important to understand, it, you know, unfortunately, and I'm going to say this bluntly, and it's people and people are going to be upset at me, but this is the sad truth. And that is, sadly, there have been a number of rabbis who have behaved in inappropriate ways. Rabbis have to stand up for MS. Nothing else. And the moment a rabbi allows corruption or bribery or agendas to seep in, he not only forfeits his own right to be served on the rabbinate, he desecrates the whole Torah. How many women and men have lost their trust in the rabbinate, in Yiddishkeit, in Allah and Torah? I get dozens and dozens of emails because they have seen so much politics, so much corruption, so much corruption. The Torah is all about MS. And I want to say to everybody, we cannot fool God. You could fool me, you could fool him, you could fool her, you could fool half the world or most of the world. But the Rebbeinu Shalom, nobody fools. And when you torture a Jewish woman, you're accountable directly to Hashem. And every single one of us has to face God without lies and without, without deceptions. I think it's also important to understand, just again, for the sake of integrity, it's important to understand. A woman says, I want a divorce. She comes to the love, I want a divorce. That doesn't mean, right, then she's an aguna. You know, if the husband says to the woman or the husband says to the love, maybe we should go to therapy, let's work it out. And there is goodwill. And they're both willing to do that. Of course, Besden has to investigate and see what's the appropriate path. Divorce is the last resort. However, when it's been established that divorce is inevitable for whatever reason, but this marriage is non-salvageable, and now the guy is holding back a get, we all know what the Rambam says in Hilchis Gerishin, that there are situations in the time of the Sanhedrin that they would physically, physically coerce the person. And there was a reason for it. So today... We don't live in that generation. We don't live in that milieu. But as a society, we have to do whatever it takes to be able to stop this crime against humanity. I'm sorry for my passion about this, but I have just seen and heard too much. And it's really extremely devastating and painful, especially coming from people who are supposed to represent Torah. You want that a woman should speak to a Rav and she should see in the Rav a paradigm of somebody who will fight, fight for those who are suffering and those who are vulnerable until his last breath. And when you see the exact opposite, it's extremely disheartening. And we all have a part to play in reversing this this injustice. Let's get into the let's get into the kishkas now. This is we're going to get into the real uh, real things that people deal with. Um, we got a bunch of questions of conversions. We try to really condense them. Let's just start with this. There's a lot of live questions. Let's really try to get to it. I don't want to say quickly, but let's, there's so much, there's so much content here. The question goes like this. I'm the reliable parent. I tend to each and every one of my kids' needs as their children. The father takes them once in a while. I, let's not do the father, but look at, let's just say the father takes them once in a while. I was fine with this up until now. As they're getting bigger and have more demands and needs and wants, they treat me like I owe them everything. And instead of appreciating how much I blood 
of my life have given to them, they started telling them to ask their father. I, I started telling them to ask their father to spend a day shopping or arranging some of their needs. I feel like I'm the losing martyr. What could I do now? Should I? The question is basically, I did this all the years, and as they get bigger, since she's the Balakrayas, they, they, they turn against it because they, they expect everything from her. So how should she deal with it? Should she, what, what's the chizik that she can get from that? Here in this story, sometimes when you're in a situation, you feel that your situation is unique because of what you've gone through. Like if somebody, uh, you know, has Corona and then they get a headache, they say, oh, you know, I have this headache because I had Corona, which could be true. But actually, some of what you might be describing might happen in very typical nuclear families that, um, you know, as as your children get older, you're you, you're coming to reconsider perhaps in some way you catered to them too much and now you're trying to figure out how can you develop a more of a of an adult reciprocal relationship with them and that i'm not so sure i, I mean obviously there there are going to be many complicating factors uh, when when there's a situation of divorce and also the way it's being described is the other parent is kind of the you know the one that just swoops on in and and buys the you know four hundred dollars sneakers or video games or whatever, but I think that that might be helpful to look at it instead of from the perspective of this is a unique problem for somebody who's divorced and look at it as an actual negotiation process that probably happens with a lot of parents and children and particularly mothers who tend to be more nurturing. You might reach a point in your life of your own emotional development that you're realizing you know that you. Um, may have been too people pleasing, or it could be that what you gave as a lot of reflexive, unconditional nurturing love when the kids were younger, you were hoping somehow that would automatically like morph developmentally into them realizing that now it's time to pay it forward, so to speak. And maybe not. And maybe those are really important conversations to have to say that, that um, not in a, you know, there's a fine line between complaining and problem solving. Uh, you know, you can almost use the same words, but they can sound so different, right? Like, I feel like I'm treated for granted. I feel like, you know, I'm just a walking ATM machine. I feel like I'm the maid. Um, you know, those are all things that certainly are legitimate feelings, but they're not the best way to go about problem solving. The way to go about problem solving is, look, you're getting older, and soon you're going to be accountable to other people, to bosses, to a spouse. And we need to talk about what it feels like around here. And right now, it feels to me like, I'm doing a lot of work and that you're not appreciating enough. You're not working with me enough. We need to talk about expectations. And also I'm very open to hearing, I, I, you know, if you think I'm being unfair, or you think I'm withholding something that you're deserving, we should talk about that too. Of course, there's complications because there's two parents and maybe I feel this one is your, is your father's responsibility to, you know, to, to manage. And I might need to put my foot down about that, but we should talk about it. So what I'm trying to say is to make a long story short is, I'm not so sure. I'm sure it's more complicated because you're divorced, but this may be a a, uh, a rather common theme that a lot of parents, particularly mothers, have to go through with their children as they, you know, progress through adolescence. Yeah, no, great. Let's... Okay, we'll do a lot. Okay, we have a bunch of live. Let's see if the first one is going to go on. Hi, you're on. Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, first of all, first of all, I have to tell you a huge thank you, and that you give chizik to many people, uh, me included. Um, 
so I'm wondering when I went through the divorce process, I desperately wanted it to happen in the friendliest way possible, specifically because I have always been very close to, you know, my ex's family, siblings and parents and all that. And um, for reasons that I'll never understand, they have decided to completely shut me out and, you know, sort of treat me as, you know, invisible, whether it comes to joint events like uh, a kid's graduations or simchas or, you know, to the extent where a young child of mine was able to leave one of her possessions in my ex-strong-law's house and there was no way I was getting it back because, you know, messages and, and this get ignored. So on, on a two-pronged question, I'm curious, how do I deal with the, with the grief and the loss of that when people they used to be close to completely shut you out and then it some way affects the kids because they see it? How do you deal with that? Well, you know, I think that, that obviously to some extent, you can't control what another person's going to do. And I, I believe you, if that helps any, I believed you that you wanted to make everything as peaceful as possible. Um, unfortunately, there's, it's hard for some people because ultimately, even if the divorce is under the most you know, friendly circumstances, it's very injurious emotionally. Um, it's a huge rejection for you as well. Even if you, even if I have no idea your personal circumstances, even if you were the one who initiated or even if you were the the one who was relatively healthy and just just needed to be done the point is it still is a terrible terrible injury emotionally that 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 people suffer and that leads to sometimes some really you know spiteful behavior because people are trying to get back uh their dignity get back what belongs to them and there isn't i don't think that there's a lot that you can do i mean you could of course ask and, and, and hope if there's a way that things could be more cooperative. But you, you, if the person you divorced, you, you had to divorce for various reasons that they couldn't manage and communicate well. And then on top of that, you, you also have tried to keep things very, you know, very cooperative and it still doesn't work. It, it is just something that is, is probably more, more that you have to accept. And, and it is awful. Uh, you could always, they're trying to say, listen, I'd love things to go better. Do you have any grievances? Are there things that you feel that, that, that are still owed to you? You know, sometimes fights are continued because people rightfully or wrongfully feel like, you know, they deserve something still, something was stolen from them. You know, do you, do you, do you feel in some way in other ways I was unfair to you? And that's why now, you know, you're dragging your feet when it comes to the child support or, or when it comes to something else. And, you know, you're not, you're not obligated in any way, uh, by the way, to, you know, to do that because you're divorced. You know, you don't have to be so nice and so accommodating, but you could ask. It might open up some doors. The person might be carrying some old resentment that you don't even realize or felt that something was done. It's a tough, it's, it's tough. I wish I had easy answers in these situations. And sometimes I would just say, sometimes you may even do that. You may open a door for, for a conversation it may be rejected, may be shut in your face, or it may open up a, a catalyst for, 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 you know, for some type of relationship, even if not, you know, the warmest and the best. And then sometimes nothing works, and we really have to grieve. And grieving is, is, is part of the process. It's part of what we go through in life when we lose something that's very precious. 
like Dr. Foyer, like Simcha said earlier about amputation, you know, if I have a if I have a close relationship and that relationship is destroyed and crumbles, there is grievance. Grievance. I, you grieve and you cry and it's it's painful and it's sad. We 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 lost something. We lost something very precious. There's sweet memories. It means a lot to us. And I think then from that grievance and from that pain, without avoiding it and without ignoring it, we feel it and we have compassion for it. And then we say, and now what? You know, I I I go back to the metaphor of the broken tablets. You know, the Marshal says that the reason we break a glass under the chuppah is because Moshe broke the luchais that were the marriage contract between the Jewish people and Hashem. And what did they do with the broken pieces? They didn't get rid of them. They didn't even put them in Shemus. The Gemara says in Baba Basra, Yudalit Shivrei Luchais Munachim Ba'aran. The broken pieces were placed into the Holy Ark and the Kaidish HaKadoshim and the Holy of Holies. And many of our luchas break. And that's our marriages, our relationships with our in-laws, our ex-in-laws, brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, nephews, nieces. And it's, it's grandparents, ex-grandparents. It's very difficult. It's, it's a part of life that may have been very sweet and very promising, especially if they're nice people. And it's been broken, and 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 you have to be able to grieve. We all have to be able to grieve, and you don't judge grieving. It doesn't have to look a certain way. It could look very painful and very sad. And then from that space of honesty and compassion and grief, we pick up the broken pieces, and we place it in our holy of holies, and we realize that from this we will have a new awareness and a new calling about how to move on in our life with with deeper sensitivity and deeper empathy and more love and more light as we embark on new relationships and new friendships and we open ourselves up to new opportunities. Okay. There's a question that came in here. How do I best support my child when they're experiencing rejection from their parent who doesn't show up for scheduled visitation without sounding negative about that parent? A tough one, and it's a and it's a uh, uh, not uncommon. I think that there's a statistic that after five years, after five years of divorce, I think that only forty percent of dads have a uh, continued relationship with their children. Wow, that's quite a number. I, I hope, like many other things, that I hope that in the firm world it's a little different. But that is, you know, that's a powerful statement. Um, it's tough. You really, you know, a lot of times when you're going through divorce and you're divorced, you're, you're alone and it, the urge is so strong to want to um, get some support from your children, uh, have them at least, you know, understand, uh, understand you and, and, and see you as not the bad person. And here, you know, it's not even that here, my gosh, the, the, the evidence is right in front of your face. It's, it's hard not to say something, but you know, all you can say is that, that, is that um, we we have each other, you know, we love each other, we take care of each other, we're a family. I don't know what's going on with with Tati or Mami. Again, I'll try to keep it gender gender neutral, although you know we can we can understand how it might be more towards one gender than another for all kinds of reasons, not necessarily bad ones. Um, but the point is that 
you know, we, we can't, I, I really, I really can't explain it. I don't know how to explain it. I can just tell you that, that we have what we have. We have our love. We'll always have it. And if he's not here tonight and he's not showing up, let's, let's plan an evening. Let's, let's, let's move on and, and have what we can have. That's, that's it. And if, you know, the child complains, um, you know, you really can't shut a child down, but it's quite a temptation for you to do more than just listen, but you have to do your best to say, listen, that is really tough. I, I really cannot explain Tati's behavior. I, I wouldn't. I, I just would say, I know it's tough. And, and again, we have, you have me and you have our love and you have your siblings, you have your siblings. Sabo, Sabta, Bubby, Zaby, whatever. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. And then, then the other side claims parental alienation because when I don't come to pick them up, they go out for supper. Right, we have to be careful. You have to be careful. First of all, there are real legal uh, ramifications. Parental alienation is considered abuse um, in, in some situations, actual abuse. Um, but, you, you know, you, it makes a very big difference. You could communicate that you're here to support the relationship in every which way. You communicate that to your spouse. You say, listen, if you come a half an hour late and, and Shloimi is an inconsolable mess, I'm going to take him out to ice cream. I'm sorry. That's what I have to do. But if you want to make a makeup, you know, I'm not here to, to be some kind of, um, uh, 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 you know, overly cop done type of person. The main thing is your, your relationship with Shloimi. I'm here to support it. I, I can't, if you, if you, you know, show up a half an hour late and he's falling apart. I got to do something, you know, but I'm not out to hurt you. And you really have to communicate that even if you want to hurt them. It's perfectly fine that you want to hurt them, but you can't communicate that. And not only that, you have to really try not to, because there is a line. Alienation is alienation. There's a difference and and you can't do it. And um, it's very hurtful to the children. And it's, um, it could end up, you know, even selfishly could end up biting you very badly too, because it can be proven. It takes time. But it can be proven, a pattern of alienation. Hey, I have a lot of live. Why should we go to the live one now? Yeah. Okay, you're on. Thank you so much for this panel. This is truly amazing. I've been divorced for about seven years now, and I wish seven years ago a panel like this did exist. Um, I have a question which is similar to the alienation question. Now, what do you do if you're being accused of parental alienation and you're really trying to do the opposite, uh, help foster a positive relationship with the other parent. And it's really the other parent who is who has a lot of changes in their life that is affecting the way the children are behaving during the visitation and are refusing to go to these visitations. Um, if you've tried more than once communicating with the other parent, trying to give them um, helpful suggestions as to how they can improve their relationship or reconnect with the kids, but the parent keeps insisting that, the problem isn't them. The problem is really that you're convincing them not to go. You're the you're the problem um, when, in fact, you're really trying to help foster that relationship. I'm going to say a couple of things. Um, don't construe it as legal advice because I'm not a lawyer, but some of it might border on, on at least things that are common sense legally. You'll have to treat the fact that you know, it's being alleged that there's parental alienation and also the fact that there's a dysfunction, right? Whether or not it's alienation, you're describing a dysfunction with the other parent and and your children. You have to treat that like there's a hole 
in the roof of your house. When you have a hole in the roof of your house, um, you don't sit around and say, wow, we have a hole in the roof of the house. That's a really awful thing. We should call the fire department. We should call the police. We should call lawyers. You fix the hole. You get mobilized and you say this is unacceptable because you can't let the rain come into the house. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way, please, that that you're not doing that. What I'm saying is you need to communicate with a lot of vigor to whoever's involved. If you have professionals involved, if maybe there's a therapist you're working with who could contact your spouse or to contact the spouse directly if you can, that you are not okay. You are absolutely 100% not okay with a failed relationship between your child and your spouse. Um, the, the, you know, the spouse might feel you're being passive aggressive. Somehow you're unconsciously sabotaging the relationship. You can say, we can get into all that. We can explore all that. Um, I, I, I'm doing everything I can for that not to happen. There are things you don't realize that you're doing. You're disappointing the children. You're frustrating them. You're scaring them. Whatever it is, I've seen it all, you know, in my work. But I'm saying you communicate that you will not accept this, that this is a problem that must be solved. Not that, not that there's alienation and not that your spouse has a problem because all, all Either of those two are, are too accusatory. But you say this is a problem that you cannot successfully have a relationship with, with our children, and we must fix it. We must do whatever we need to do. I'll go to two therapists together with you. I'll go to six rabbis. I don't care. You might think I'm alienating. I don't know. I'm open to input. But right now, the main thing is you should know is I will not tolerate it just like you won't tolerate it. Just like I won't tolerate a hole in the roof of our house raining in, I will not tolerate any anything that stops you from having a relationship with our children. You've got to come across strong. And I know that might be hard to do because you might not have a partner, uh, not, a, not a software partner, but it's important to try. But I think, yeah, no, I would just ask, what if the guy is, say, has a real personality disorder or is a real trauma victim or has a mental illness there's nobody to speak to? Mm-hmm. I'm asking. Right, so is it, you know, obviously- There's nobody to speak to. It's like it's not like we're having a conversation. He's like, "No, you're 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 the worst person. You're the worst mother. I'm going to see you in court and sue you for nine million dollars." Yeah, listen, there there are all kinds of people, and and certainly there are going to be extremes. You know, even personality disorders are are they're not like it's it's not like a a disease like there's an antibody test. As if even the antibody tests are totally accurate, but it's not even that there's like tests. Oh, this person has a personality disorder. People operate in all kinds of ranges of behavior at all kinds of times. Most people, at least some of the time, can be reasonable. So I'm saying the energy that comes across when you say, I, I am aggrieved that you don't have a relationship with your child. I don't want to tolerate it is helpful. Is the other, if the other person's, you know, a maniac, if they're not negotiable, well, you know, you just make sure you're taking a lot of notes. Uh, that that you're doing all this and you say, listen, I'll go to your therapist. I'll go to your rabbi. I'll do whatever we need to do. I want you to have this relationship. I'm, you know, there's stuff I got to tell you. I got to give you feedback. You do things that scare the kids. You do, uh, you know, if that's what it is, we can talk about it, but I'm not here to stop you from having this relationship. And, you know, if the person really is, is out, is, is really unbalanced, I, I, I suppose that needs to be discussed in, you know, some kind of co-parenting and some kind of uh, a therapy environment where it could be assessed and dealt with. And it's not easy. Um, but the end is, you know, short of the children being abused, obviously if they're abused, you know, you have to go through whatever channels one does to to, to make sure they're not being abused and, and to document that. But, you know, short of that, listen, the, you, you know, when you're married, children have to put up with some kind of crazy parents also. I mean, all of us at times might be crazy parents. The point is children are very resilient. It, it, it might not be the best visit, 
um, it, and it might not be great, but it also might be still apparent. And so long as it's not really putting the child in danger, it still might be something you need know, to encourage and do your best to, you know, to support and check to make sure the child is not, you know, suffering incredibly. But of course, these are challenging situations. But I would say, you know, everybody thinks that their that their bar plukta is the most unreasonable, sociopathic, you know, crazy person. And I can't say it's not true some of the time, but you have to be aware because it's a lot less it's a lot less true, you know, than it than it feels a lot of the time. Okay, well, I'm going to go to the next one. Unmute. Okay, there we go. Can you hear me? Yes, we hear yes. you. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm, I had a good marriage. Um, the last seven years of my marriage was, um, I was a caregiver to my husband who took mentally ill. It was a sad um, divorce because of that. Um, I've been divorced now for five years. Um, three years ago, I moved to a, um, a base, an army base, um, on top of a mountain in the middle of the desert. And so there's no community around me at all. Um, so my, my question is, um, I get very lonely at times and I, I almost feel ashamed to say that, at times I feel that Hashem is not enough for me and that I need, I need something more. And I don't know how to reconnect to God when I feel melancholy like that, where, because Hashem should be enough for me. I don't know why Hashem should be enough for you. All the rest of us humans need lots of friends and family and love and support. Um, no offense to Hashem uh, in any way. I, I just, you know, obviously I don't know your situation, but it sounds like you're awfully lonely. And it sounds like, you know, if you needed to do this work, um, uh, serve your country, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, it sounds amazing. Um, just as soon as possible, you have to be realistic. Hashem is not enough. <laughs> no, Hashem is enough if you're a Malach. But not if you're a human being. You need a lover. You need a friend. You need your family. You need your community. I mean, as 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 soon as possible, even if you can't solve it now, to know that you're acknowledging that's a real need and that you're going to move towards solving it. I mean, that's vital. Why? Yeah. I mean, again, I don't know your arrangements, but maybe maybe let's say once a month or twice a month for Shabbat, you can go to a Jewish community and. And maybe be with somebody's home. I don't know if you have family or friends or old neighbors or maybe relatives or you could. No, I'm 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 in the middle of nowhere right now. So for me to to go anywhere, it would be you know minimum of a three to five hour drive to get to a community that was. Could you like go once a month, maybe like like maybe a shul, a community, a Chabad house, another community that works for you, maybe relative, I don't know, like once a month maybe, just to be able to rekindle that uh, human touch. But it's more than just a human touch. I mean, I, I can go for a, um, 
a, a holiday for Shavuos. I could go to, to, to the, you know, I could drive five hours, spend the weekend, but yet it's not, it's not filling me up. And that's why I am saying that there's, there's something missing and I, I don't know how to get that back. Right. Well, do you like people? Do you like people? Or you never, you always find with God alone? No, I, I like people. I like being around people. I was a, I, I was a social butterfly before. So maybe as soon as possible, like Reb Simcha said, you can try uh, moving in that direction. But even before then, even before then, you know, don't give up on yourself. You know, maybe pursue a hobby, maybe write a journal, spend time in nature, discover the art of prayer, of song, of meditation. Maybe communicate through Zoom, on the telephone, email, WhatsApp, social media, communicate with people, create a blog, create a social, become part of a social community. I mean, I myself have classes on Zoom a few times a week. You're welcome to join. There's a lot of people live there. You're welcome to join Coach Menachem and Usher every Sunday night. There's a lot going. There's a lot going on in, on Zoom. They say Gam Zoom Lataiva. So seize the moment, even before you could physically relocate. Seize the moment, and Hashem should guide you in the right direction and find the peace and fulfillment that you need. Okay, let's get into more questions over here. There's so much more to cover. Rabbi, are you ready? Yeah. Rabbi, Rabbi, take a lead on this one, if you don't mind. My ex-wife uses the kids as pawns all the time. It goes something like this. Tell your father you don't have enough clothes. If he loves you, he would give you more money to pay for things. She plays all these mind games, and then the kids repeat it to me. I'm not sure the best approach to handle these kinds of attacks coming directly from my children to me. Rabbi. Wow. (sighs) So first of all, I'm sorry. This is this is tough. So I would just I would just give three messages. Message number one: Is it possible, in a kind but very authentic, respectful but firm way, communicate to her, either directly or maybe through a friend or through a good messenger who will get the message through, and that is. You know, you may have you may have very very negative opinions about me, and I'm not judging it at the moment. You know, whatever. You know, between our marriage didn't work out after everything said and done. But you know, I'm just thinking about myself. You know, if I would find out that my father doesn't like me and my father doesn't love me, it would be so painful for me. Like, let's think about the children. It's really so not good for the children to really feel that their tati doesn't love them. So even if, you know, you have so much against me, and and maybe you're a thousand percent right, maybe you're not, but can we get that message through to her? Like just, habrachmanus of the kinder, you know, what are they going to gain by feeling that their mother loves them and their father despises them? Could somebody get that message through to her? I mean, that would be wonderful. Number one. Number two, um, I think the bottom line is as follows. I can't control her. I could try to persuade. I could try to influence. And we should. We should try to influence in a positive way. But I ultimately can't control her. So I would say, 
generally be the best parent you can be. Don't get involved in any dispute or competition with your ex. I can't stop her, or in other cases him, from doing what they do. I cannot keep the kids away from their other parent, and I don't want to unless they're being abused. So I have to leave it. But I want you to think about the possibility of being an amazing parent, giving it all you got with with stamina and vigor and sincerity, create a deep closeness with your children, and hope and pray that your kids make the right choices. But don't stoop down to your ex's level and make this a fight. You'll show me, I'll show you, I'll get even with you, I'll get justice, I'll, 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 I'll take revenge, I'll show you who's stronger, I'll show you who's more powerful. I'm tempted to do that. We're tempted to do that. We're human, we're vulnerable, we're frail. We get outraged, we get overwhelmed. It's like, <laughs> I want to do X, Y, Z. I got that. But it really doesn't help us. It really doesn't help us. I always want to focus on my target. What's your target? Keep your eye on your ultimate goal. What's your ultimate goal? Creating the best possible future for me and my children. Creating the best possible future for me and my children. For that, they need an amazing parent. They need a parent who's close to them, who listens to them. I'm going to try to influence her, myself or through a friend, to be able to stop this venomous talk about me because it really doesn't help. But till that point, and even if I can't get through, I can't always change the other person. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to besmirch the other person. I'm not going to have them lose their father and their mother. But I'm going to, I'm going to be there from, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be an amazing, amazing parent. I may have to sob at night for the pain and the grief. And I'm going to open myself up for them to be able to feel secure in our relationship and that they can vent and express whatever they need to express. And I'm going to create, I'm going to create space for that. If I may, I just wanted to add something. I think that's very important and it's relevant to probably a lot of other questions too, which is the other side, which is talking to the children. I I think it's fair to say to the children, of course, you know, we're painting a very broad brush. There's different ages, different ability to conceptualize, but in, 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 in a pleasant but firm way to say, listen, if you need something, I have no problem with you asking me for something respectfully. And, you know, if I can give it to you, I will genuinely give it to you. If, if I cannot, I'll tell you, if you really feel strongly that you still should get it, I can, we can discuss it. I'm not comfortable with you delivering messages, you know, from, from, from Tati or mommy, that, that doesn't work for me. And it's really not healthy for you either. If you need something, ask yourself, is it really something that you need and that you want? And of course, if you need to want something, I'm always interested and we can discuss that, but be very careful not to, you know, say it in the other person's name, because it's not really about that. It's about what you need or not need. And it gets very complicated. And I think that that's something, you know, obviously, depending on the age of the child, that you could start to commun- communicate and set those boundaries and say that it's not a, uh, the, the child is not the person in between. Say, I don't want you to be the person in between. You know, if, if, if mommy or Tati thinks you need new shoes, that's fine. They could speak to me about that. If you think you need new shoes, think about it and ask me for new shoes. And let's talk about it. Okay, somebody just texted me this question. It's another alienation question, but I, I want to get into that a little bit. A lot of people are texting me these different things. 
how do I explain my kids without losing respect for me that their father or for me that their father is trying to desperately make them believe I no longer am in existence? I can't text them, call them, or email them because he just ignores me. I'm blocked from his phone, and he doesn't read my emails. One of the kids told me that he's trying to make them believe that his wife gave birth to my kids. How do I explain this to the kids without killing them? The ultimate alienation. I'm trying to understand the scenario. The kids live with the father. The father is remarried, and it seems like the father has mostly custody, or they live by him full time. And anytime she tries to reach out, whether via email or phone or whatever she does, she seems like she has very little contact, and the father makes it impossible, and basically trying to convince the kids the mother doesn't exist. Well, you know, how can you explain that to the kids? You don't have contact with the kids. I'm, I'm a little confused. I'm trying to be like, uh, you know, uh, uh, giving a, a, a glib answer. I like think she, means, she has very legal. little contact. Very, she has very little contact. Okay. During those moments, how should she handle it? Like, well, like, it, it, assuming she has some, they think listen. that she doesn't want more contact basically right they right. think he's alien he he's she's telling them that she's not interested in them besides let's say once once in three months that's but what I understood I, I suppose it, it would be to find out what the children genuinely want say listen do you want to have more contact with me if you do I'm here for you if you don't it's probably not the best thing for a child to have no contact with their parents. So um, the adults might think differently, uh, but I first want to know what you want. Do you want to have more contact with me? That would probably be the, the most important thing to say. And then to figure out how that gets solved. I mean, some of this just sounds like legal. Um, sorry to say, it sounds some, you know, like if you're being deprived of your rights, but on the other hand, for some reason, legally, this is what was engineered. That's awful. Um, I, I hope or maybe, or maybe, there, it, maybe there was no legal procedure, and you have to find out from let's, a real let's, let's, what so are your legal rights. There's, there's a lot of parents, whether it's a father or mother, usually the father that, that have minimal contact with their kids for whatever reason it may be. Whether he went through a hospitalization or he he lived out of town for a long time, there are parents that have that scenario. So let's say in such a scenario where the other parent is really trying to fully alienate the parent, trying to really make it impossible. When you have that little moments with the child. How do you make it? You know what I mean, as, as I said, you start with the kid. You say, "Listen, I, I uh, there's a lot going on over here. Not all the time am I able to see you, but I want to start with what do you want? Do you do you are you satisfied with how much we're meeting? Do you want to meet more? And like I said, there's a difference between engaging and collaborating with a child versus giving over control. Like if the child says, "No, I want anything to do with you," you could say, "Well, you let, know, me, let, me, let, let me let me put somebody live on now." Okay. Okay. Sure. Hi. Hi, I was the one who asked the question. Yes. Um, okay, it was a little misunderstood. We have we have joint custody. I the kids live by me, and they go to him for visitation. We have that. The problem okay. is that any type of communication um, is not done. If I ever my kids will ask me, could you just text him? Could you just ask him? And how do I tell my kids? Um, I really can't because I'm blocked from his phone. I really can't because I can't communicate with him. He doesn't answer me. Um, anything that he wants to do, he'll just do directly with the kids, communicate directly th- through them, and as if I just don't exist. I do see my kids. I'm very close with my kids. We have a good relationship, but this has been coming up lately a lot more since he remarried. And like one of my kids told me, he's trying to make believe his new wife gave birth to all of us and we don't exist anymore. 
well, and I don't want to I don't want to kill them, and I don't want them to disrespect him either. Well, so to, it's, to, it's, to, to judge to judge him a bit favorably, which is not to say at all that I'm judging him favorably. What I mean to say is to understand his motivations as something less than completely maniacal and unhinged. It might be, you know, that he's struggling very much uh, to create, you know, this bond with his wife and that his wife somehow or another is threatened by you or finds you to be intrusive. And again, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that it's it has a little bit of that feel there might be a way somehow through some intermediary to diffuse it and say, look, if the issue is that somehow your wife doesn't want me communicating with you, that, that this creates some kind of, you know, discord, no, I don't want to cause that, you know, you should, you should live and be happy and be married, you know, for another 120 years. Somehow though, I do need a system of communicating with you so that we could have an orderly, uh, you know, process of collaborating on the parenting. If you want to limit it to email, if you want to use some kind of uh, designated middleman or third party, but to communicate, you know, that 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 you might be willing to understand that there's something going on here because it does sound like there's something going on. You know, does that so make sense? For- let, let me. It makes sense, but let me just add: he is he is an addict and he's an alcoholic. So there's not. not the, the, the brain function is a little bit, you know, distorted over there. Um, in terms of communicating, you know, you said via email, I spent thousands of dollars with an attorney last summer for him to set up. He wanted to set up a specific email, that that's the one that I should use. We went through our attorneys and we set it up. And within mm-hmm. a month, he let, he let our mediator know that he's no longer going to be using that email to communicate. He's not very um, cooperative when it comes to anything like that. I do have a phenomenal attorney. She was actually on here last week. Um, and she, you know, we're trying. She's trying maybe through the court system. I, I hate fighting and I hate going to court and I have no interest in this. My my bigger concern is my children. How do I make sure that they are okay through all this without getting killed by it? I I, I see, especially my son, he does idolize his father. I never talk bad about their father to them. I believe that par- children, as long as the parents aren't abusive, children should have a relationship with both the mother and the father. So I, and I encourage that with my children. I really do. But seeing this, we are, you know, my son will come and just. So I want to hear from Rabbi Weinberg. So I want to hear from Rabbi Weinberg on this. Rabbi, let's globalize because alienation is a major topic. And I know a lot of parents here tonight go through this in different variations and forms. First of all, it's very painful. <laughs> you know, I know you don't need to hear that for me, but it's very, very painful. It's it's difficult. In Yiddish, there's an expression, surrise the hearts. It it, it it tears one's heart open. It's very difficult. And, you know, I think you're trying to do whatever you, you can through a mediator. It sounds like, you know, you're really going above and beyond and you're very peaceful and civil, as you said. The last thing you want is a fight. And I think... Sometimes we just have to trust, you know, we have to trust our children and trust God. Like our children are going through a traumatic event. It's difficult. And I think, you know, what we can do most is just they should feel that we're here for them and that we have no answers and solutions to all the problems, but that the relationship is so powerful and what we know today, I think, in healing is that when people know that the relationship is so powerful, 
consciously or unconsciously, it gives them the, the chizuk, the strength, to know that they could withstand the tsunamis that come their way. If I feel deeply connected... How do I give that over to my children? So I think you give it over to your children in two ways. Number one, by just consolidating your relationship with them as much as possible, that they should be able to feel safe in your presence, that they should be able, they feel understood, that they feel your pride in them, an unconditional love and an unconditional pride in them. They feel, you know, how much you, you validate them. And, and it's a really safe space in your Daladamas, in your presence. And that relationship itself, when it's strong, it just gives them an internal compass and an internal stamina and an internal spine and backbone to be able to deal with those things in their life that are in flux and that are not stable. And obviously, if this guy is an addict, there's a lack of stability there. And to be able to talk about the fact that, you know, mommy doesn't have the solutions to all the challenges, you know. I go, all of us go through hard times, but, but we're here for each other forever, unconditionally. And, you know, all of your needs, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm trying the best you can. If you have a suggestion or you feel something could be done this way, you know, let's do it this way. But you could be honest that I don't have a solution for, for all the problems, but, you know, we're doing the best we can. And, you know, let's just try to communicate as often as possible, direct as possible. And whatever your needs are, you know, please articulate them to me and I'm, I'm just here for you. I think that's, uh, that's, that, that's so, that's so important and, and really trust their resilience. You know, a lot of times, and I want to say this generally, divorced parents, especially often the couples, the, the, the husband and the wife who are now divorced drift away hashkafically, religiously. Sometimes the husband becomes secular. It's very common or at least a lot less religious than he was. Sometimes it's the other way around. And parents are so worried. You know, we had a unified home and a unified front and a certain type of chinuch, and the house had certain standards. And now suddenly there's two homes with opposite standards. And I can't change that. I can't change my ex-husband. I can't change my ex-wife. I can't force my standards on them. And we have to realize that these children are open to things that other children are sometimes not open to, but their Yiddishkeit is also going to be much more real and much more pnimiyizdik and much more authentic because they are not going to be able to just, you know, the conveyor belt, you know, just fly through the system. They're really going to have to work things out. It's going to have to be real and genuine. And we have to trust Hashem. We got to daven. We got to believe in these kids. We have to be able to communicate to them openly. And we have to realize that their journeys are different journeys, just like our journeys are different journeys. Every neshama has its journey, and we want to hold on to them and give them all the kayak that they need. That as they grow up, they should be able to make the best choices for their for their future, and trust that, and and have betachin in them, and realize that we can't control everything, and that's that's part of their journey, and it wasn't our choice. This is part of the hashgacha. They their neshamas have their journey, but you know what? They're going to emerge on the other side often much stronger, much deeper, much more authentic. And let's face it, the future leaders of the Jewish people are people who have been tried and people who have been tested and people who have endured trauma. Because let me ask you, anybody who really, really helped you in your life and anybody who really gave you empathy in your life, were they not people who went through pain themselves? 
So it's these types of children and these types of people who go through pain, who become leaders and mentors and beacons of light and ambassadors of, of resilience and love. I think we'll go to the next live one to, to follow up on this, and then we'll get into it. Uh, you're on live. Okay, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, I guess just to preface it, I have two incredible children, Moshamos, and um, and personalities that are really incredible and very inspiring to me. Um, but uh, every so often, um, they'll co- come home or they'll call me and they'll tell me about how you know their mother gave them non-kosher food or they went on vacation they had this non-kosher food um and i guess my question is is how how do i react to my children they're not yet barabbas mitzvah um and so i know that their mother is responsible for them but at the same time i, I don't know how to be mechanic for my children um i tend to just brush it off or say you know it sounds yummy or just tell them that I love them so much, no matter what. Um, but I, I don't know if that's the, the correct approach to, uh, to it. Um, and in addition to that, in our parenting agreement, it does specify that we're supposed to raise the children Orthodox and in a kosher home. Um, we did so when we were married um, and, you know, all their, our entire extended family, you know, li- lives, in a, a from lifestyle, so when when approaching the the uh, our our parent coordinator um, again, the Rav pretty much said he wasn't sure really what there's much to do. The mother's going to kind of do what she's going to do. Um, there's not much that we could do to control it. How would you uh, how would you suggest to approach my children, and if I should, how to approach um, my ex? I just wanna I just wanna jump in over here. This we got this question in many different versions. Just letting you know, like you know, one parent became not from dealing with it. Sai and one of the questions is also about I want my kids to have nothing to do with them. I want to alienate the kids because the person's not from. So this is a global question. Rabbi, if you can go first and then if you can follow up if we can do it that way. Yeah. So th- this is a difficult one. As usual, we always try at the onset. Uh, to be communicative and to try to create the best, you know, ideal resolution. And that is, is it possible for you or a mediator or a friend of the family or somebody who is wise and sensitive to be able to communicate to her? You know, it's difficult enough to raise children, even in a married home where everybody is married. It's not easy to raise children on any day, you know, even on a good day. Certainly when there's a divorce, there are more challenges. But at least if they can be given, you know, values that are more unifying, whether in terms of Yiddishkeit, Torah, Mitzvahs, Shabbos, Kashrus, it's just a little easier for them. And now to create a new point of contention, you know, it's really contrary to our agreement. And is this really what we want to, you know, split the children in half? You remember I spoke about Shlomo HaMelech saying, let's split the child in half. It's not just physically, sometimes it's emotionally, you know, split them cut them between two different lives. Is there a way of, of, of persuading her, of just understanding? It's not about, I'm not trying to judge you, and I'm not telling you to be from, and I'm not telling you what to believe and what not to believe, but we're trying to raise children. You know, what's the best thing for these children? In school, they're learning that you have to eat kosher, and you have to keep Shabbos, and you can't mix milchiks and fleshiks, and then they come to the house, and, and you know, it, 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 
it's it's just not it's not fair to them. Can we communicate that to her? If we can't, or it's going to be ineffective, I think we come back to that which we can do as parents, and that is be an amazing parents based on your own values, your, your Torah values, your hashkafa. Create create a deep closeness to your children. Allow them to ask their questions. When they get older, especially, they're going to have a lot of conversations with you about Yiddishkeit and why does mommy not believe this? And I don't think you should besmirch her in any way. I don't think it's helpful. But you could discuss the fact that, you know, we live in a world that's confusing and we live in a world of uncertainty and we live in a world where we have to make choices. And for thousands of years, our ancestors are here because we made these choices to hold on to Maimed Har Sinai. And that's why we're still here and we're strong and we're surviving and we're thriving and hope and pray that they will develop the resilience and make the right choices. Uh, I would also just add one more thing, and that is, I think I mentioned, I got a, le- I got a call last week from somebody who told me that uh, his wife was schlepping him in court for years and years and years. And apparently she had all the money in the world, and the court case would just not end. And uh, at some point, you know, People advised him to continue, but he decided he's not fighting anymore. And she completely alienated him. And he told me something very interesting. He said it was so painful, and this is what he did. He decided not to fight. He created an email account for each one of the children. For each one of the children, he created an email account. And almost every day, he sent an email with a picture to each one of the children. I think he had around five children. He would go to the zoo, or he would buy a soda or an ice cream, take a picture. I wish you were here with me and sent it to the email. And when these children got a little older, they came to him one day and they said, Tati, why do you not want to have any relationship with us? Why did you alienate us? Why aren't you interested in us? Because that's what she fed. She fed him. She fed them. And he told me, he gave them each the password to their email account. They opened it up. I can cry. And they saw 10 years of emails a few times a week, with pictures and little notes to them. I love you, Yankee. I miss you. I wish you were here with me in the Bronx Zoo. I wish you were here with me shopping for a sweater. I wish you were here with me for a slice of pizza. Now, you can't invent 10 years of emails in a few nights. And he says, in one day, in one day, it was over. They embraced him. Now, I'm not suggesting this exact format to anybody, and you have to know your legal rights and I'm not telling you to wait chas v'shalom 10 years till you see your children chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom. What I'm saying is, I was so moved by the vision of this person. He decided he's not fighting, but he invested in those emails. And you know what? All of his children, all of his children today, <laughs> they're older, but they're with him. They, live, they have an unbelievable, unbelievable relationship. He did not only think short-term, he thought long-term. So just remember that as a paradigm you know, the seeds we plant, they produce trees. Maybe not tomorrow, but they produce trees. It's painful. It's painful. It's hard. We don't understand why. But don't stop planting those seeds. Well, you know, first of all, that's brilliant. Uh, more credit to him. The, the, the issue of long game versus short game is so important. And when it comes to the religious issues, that's extremely operative too. My father, Zichon of Racha, was very fond of saying, Ein apotropsia, which loosely translates as the Torah requires no nursemaid. You don't need to protect the Torah. The Torah can do a good job of protecting itself. 
And you, what that means is, I, I, I think, you know, in this situation, I don't think you should take it um, sitting down. I think if your wife is giving the kids unkosher food sometimes, I think it's an issue. But how you handle it is very important. And, you know, today, in general, we're kind of blessed with an environment where um, kids don't even need to lie to us anymore about whatever they're doing wrong because there's so much chutzpah and there's so much freedom that they're actually doing us the favor of not fakely complying and on the inside doing whatever they want or sneaking around us. They simply don't even need to sneak anymore. But the truth is that it's a big favor for all of us because we have to get real and your children just have to grow up a little bit faster. But I would, doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter the age almost. I would explain to them, look, this is what kosher is. This is what we believe. This is what I believe. I believe it's good for your soul. I believe it's good for your, it's good for your body. Keeping the mitzvahs and the Torah is a part of our family. Uh, it's what we do. And we, we know it brings good things for us. And, you know, I'm not here to ever beat you up. If when you're with mom, you go, you know, have a, have a known kosher Dorito or whatever. Uh, uh, I'm not interested in, in, in shaming you or being angry at you for choices that you make, uh, you know, when you're not with me and when you're with another parent. But I do want you to realize that you have rights and that choosing to keep kosher is something that any child can do at any age um, and that you don't have to accept that. And if you don't want to eat something unkosher, you don't have to eat it. And it's very important. You should communicate that and not get into, you know, your wife is wrong. She's terrible. She's this, she's that. Just just speak for what you believe in. Don't make it too crazy, but but be firm that's what you believe in and say that if you want to talk about it more, you feel conflicted about it, or sometimes you want to do one thing or the other, I'm here for you, but this is what I believe, and I believe it's very important, you know, never to eat something that's not kosher. Wow, beautiful. Wow, what a powerful share. Why, why, we didn't uh, touch two topics. Dating and marriage, the blending. Should we do it down the road? We'll okay. do a third session. We'll do a third session, Be'ez Hashem. Okay, Be'ez Hashem, down the road, we'll, we'll do the third session. I think we covered most of the basic topics, and uh, the, the third session will, I guess, include when's the right time to start dating, that whole parsha, and... Redating, redating. Redating, right. And the blended family, second marriage, all those complications, so we'll get to that. Let's go to closing, and then uh, Rabbi Nachman will give some closing, Rabbi Simcha, then Rabbi Waiwai. Again, I want to give a good shkech, Rabbi Waiwai, Jacob Sinner, Rabbi Simcha for you for coming on tonight, especially Rabbi Simcha, last second. I'm sure you go to sleep every night at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, so it's not a big deal. This is regular for you, right? I'm sure. So we appreciate that. Um, you know, maybe we'll do something, you know, Matzah Shabbos. I have a program at 1 a.m. if you're available. And, Actually, uh, <laughs> I'm working pretty hard, Matzah Shabbos. It's a good time. Go for it. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Be Mechazik, Sir Crowder. I think tonight was a very uh, personal share. People were very uh, open and vulnerable. And I think we've got a tremendous amount of physics. Much for everybody who's watching this later. Um, I hope the thousands of people that watch it should internalize. Like I said at the beginning of the first year, you know, people that are happily married and watch it, be able to give chizik to the people that are going through this, your family members and friends, people that have the hard marriages or, you know, contemplating divorce. Please watch this entire series. I guarantee you're definitely not going to get divorced so quickly. And for the people that are going through it, um, I'm sure a lot of this stuff is very relevant, and I hope you're getting chizik and some, some adrocha with it. Again, we have a share every Sunday night. This is the Zoom share code with 10 o'clock. Next Sunday, June 6th, coming up, you know, in a few days, we're going to have Moshe Norman, a good friend of mine, he runs Quality Families in Lakewood together with um, his friend, Dr. Binyamin, Dr. Binyamin Teffer. Um, we're going to be talking about the solution to most relationship problems and learning the subtitles of communication. It's really when I really delve in communication, how to communicate to spouses, to children, 
to friends and things. Uh, I believe we believe strongly that communication is probably would solve a lot of problems that people have. And um, hopefully we're gonna, it's going to be a very dynamic session. We're working on it and it should be amazing. Everything here tonight's recorded. It's going to be available on MenachemBurnful.com. If you have any questions, please email CoachMenachem at gmail.com. If any, you know, he'll forward the emails to Rebbe Simchot, Rebbe YY, and uh, hopefully, hopefully when they have time, they'll respond. Um, if anybody wants to hear this year on the phone, it's share number 57. It's going to be on the phone number 848-777-GROW. And again, I want to thank our advertising sponsors, the Lakewood Scoop, Rabbi Yanif Chazak, Chayla Kaufman, and Shmuel Summer from the JCN. And again, a special thank you to Sasha Friedman from California, who's a dating coach. And to Suri Cohn for helping put together the questions and really uh, making this amazing. And Hashem will get back uh, on the schedule when we'll do part three with Rabbi YY on when is the right time to start date, redating and second marriages and blending families, which is a huge topic. I want to go to closing from our host, Coach Menachem, Father Rabbi Simcha, then Rabbi YY. Coach Menachem. Thank you very much. Yes, it was a very, very powerful, a lot of information. And I know a lot of people sometimes feel when they come to Zoom, and they uh, throw out their, their, these crazy questions, and then the answers are pretty like logic and uh, what they should do, and it doesn't always cover everything. But I think it's very important, like we discussed, to have a committee. I believe the committee they should they, everybody needs to have even after divorce. How important it's to have your your people around you that can help you, whatever it is, because to carry all of this on your own can be very, very hard and uh, you're going through enough. So I'm not sure which organization or where you can find this. So I'm sure there are people who, who know, you know, we can share it where you can pick up and uh, form such a committee. And it's a big, uh, it's, I'm hum- humble to be part of this, to be able to have the discussions and it's a big schuss, Baruch Hashem. And uh, I want to thank you, Rabbi Jacobson and Rabbi, Dr. Simcha Feuerman to be with us tonight. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll just close with one uh, one of the most powerful sayings from uh, a preeminent uh, early psychoanalyst, Carl Jung, that applies to many, many of these situations, which is the very deep idea, which is the degree that you're going to influence others is the degree to which you are willing to be influenced. Any negotiation, any parenting issue, any anything that you're dealing with, if you're not going to come in ready to hear and listen and be impressed and be influenced, as much as you're able to do that, that's as much as you'll be able to affect others. And it's not easy, but that's that's what the work takes. Wow. That's powerful. Uh, Jung, Jung was a special man, let me tell you. A uh, lot to read if anybody wants to study up on him. He was quite, he's one of the few religious psychoanalysts, a very devoutly religious person. Say that Freud, they say that Freud, Sigmund Freud, with his chevre there, could have had a minion for Mincha every day. The problem is, the only one who believed in God was the guy, Jung. So, <laughs> he was the only one who would have a Mincha. <laughs> by the way, by the way, Absimcha, just an interesting little trivia. I read an interview that somebody had with Dr. Jung at the age of 80, and the man asked him, where did he get his most basic ideas about spirituality and the collective unconscious and his entire philosophy of the human mind? And his answer was, I kid you not, I was shocked. I read it, black and white. He says, the foundation of all my teachings comes from a man 
who lived in the 18th century, and his name was Rabbi Doif Bear, and he was known as the Magid of Mizrich. Yes, yeah, Mama. that is known. Uh, in, in a recorded interview, they you can get you can hear it on YouTube. They asked him, um, th- "Does he believe in God?" And he said, "I don't believe in God." He said, "I know God." Yeah. <laughs> Right. It was quite, he was a very interesting man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an amazing insight of his. To the degree that you're ready to be changed, you'll be able to affect and change others. I would just, uh, thank you. I would just add also another, I think, very important point. And uh, this comes from one of the great Hasidic masters, the Yitzchak of Varka. Varka is a city in Poland. And he once said a very, very powerful line. He said, where is friendship mentioned in the Torah? Is there ever a friend mentioned in Torah? We have spouses, we have parents and children, we have siblings constantly. Where is there the concept of friendship? And the answer is once. In Parshas Vayeshev, Yehuda leaves his brothers and he encounters a friend. A friend from a place called Adulam, and his name is Chira. Wow, he's the only, he's the only friendship described in the Chumash. In the Tanakh, you'll have David and Yonason, you'll have other friends. But in Chumash, Chamisha Chumashitaira, it's the only friend, as far as my memory, uh, as far as my memory goes. And he said, why? He said, what happens in this friendship? What happens in this friendship is, we know the story, Yehuda at some point is together with Tamar and then he sends his friends with two goats in order to give it to Tamar because that was the price that he agreed on. And this friend can't find Tamar because of course she was not this regular promiscuous woman. She was the tzaddikah's Tamar. So Yehuda says to him, just forget about it, lavuz. You know, we're going to get embarrassed here. This is going to be very disgraceful. If people find out what's happening, let's just keep the goats and she'll hold on to my collateral, you know, my stick and my seal and my belt and the whole continuation of the story. And Rabbi Yitzchak Varka says, what is the Torah teaching us here? The definition of a friend is somebody in whose presence you could think out loud. Somebody in whose presence you can talk about everything. Somebody in whose presence you can talk about things that are very embarrassing, very vulnerable, very humiliating, very shameful. You're not comfortable hanging up signs or putting it on your WhatsApp status. These are things that are really very, very personal, very intimate. But that's the definition of a friend. And I think it's so important, as all of us go through our life's journeys, that there is somebody you are completely open with. Somebody you are completely honest with. Not the whole world. (laughs) Not everybody in shul. Not everybody is your best, most amazing friend. Be nice to everybody. We like everybody. We love everybody. But you have to have that one person, two people, three people. Somebody you are really vulnerable with. All my mistakes, all my sins, all my transgressions. All my failures, all my letdowns, all my setbacks, all my fears, my insecurities, bring it out to the fore. Discuss it with somebody, somebody you trust, somebody who's a confidant, somebody who can hold your hand, somebody who can be there for you, hopefully somebody who can challenge you, somebody who can stimulate you. And especially those of us who go through divorce, it's a very lonely place. 
because in a, you know in a good marriage hopefully your spouse is one of your best friends or maybe your best friend when you're divorced by definition you're going into a very lonely place your parents may be judging you your siblings may be judging you certainly your ex's parents are judging you your friends don't know how to relate to you you're really really alone and when we're alone we end up we end up often in the abyss so i say to all of you wherever your situation is just connect to an individual or a few individuals with whom you could be really, really open with. People who like you, people who forgive you, people who will challenge you, but they cherish you. And people who will help guide you in the right path in a very, very vulnerable time of your life. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Waiwai. Thank you, Rabbi Simcha. And we'll see everybody June 6th. Amazing share. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Chazak, chazak, v'niz chazak. Amen. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.